I'm a free black man, hold up my head, black man. Beautiful black man, I don't that feel nice, man. I love your brother, black man, and chase your dreams, black man. And get that cream, black man, we the original man. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to another edition of Confessions of a Native Son. I'm your host, Mike Stedman, a Marine Corps veteran, entrepreneur, and aspiring author who enjoys thought-provoking and engaging dialogue about race, culture, and business. In this episode, I interview my good friend and fellow Navy boxing teammate, Mikoto Yoshida, a.k.a. Yoshi. Yoshi was my team captain my sophomore year at the Naval Academy. For the past 12 years, we've constantly managed to run into each other during officer training in Quantico, my deployment to Okinawa, and at the Brigade Boxing Championships in Annapolis, Maryland. Over the past few years, Yoshi and I have become a lot closer, and I reached out to him to help me write the book, Confessions of a Native Son. In the process of discussing the book, Yoshi has undergone his own cultural awakening as an Asian American. In the following episode, he opens up about his experience as an Asian American in the United States Marine Corps, uncovering the history of Japanese American internment during World War II, and the controversial letter he wrote to the superintendent of the United States Naval Academy after a board member was heard saying racist comments on Facebook Live. As always, thanks again for sharing your time with me, and I hope you enjoy the show. You start a business with him, you make commitments to him, we all can profit and win and reinvest with our friends, and circle back to the hood and teach them youngsters to do it, do it. All right, we are live. What's going on, everyone? Thanks for tuning in to another edition of my show. Got another special guest for you today, fellow Naval Academy graduate, Marine Corps Infantry Officer, Navy boxer, good friend, and teammate, Miko Yoshida. What's going on, Miko? Hey, what's going on, Mike? Thanks for having me. No, thank you for joining the platform today, man. Um, for those of you out there that don't know, I'm actually writing a book of the this namesake of this podcast called Confessions of a Native Son. And Miko has a long history within the publishing industry. Maybe not, you know, uh, owning his own company or anything like that, but he's he's been around it. Like, he can speak to it. And so... When I came up with the idea for this this book idea, he was one of the first persons I uh, reached out to. to and so uh, he's pushing me behind the scenes to to get this thing rolling and make some progress on it. Um, the Again, for the show, the reason I started this podcast was to help me articulate my thoughts for a book, just sharing my different uh, thoughts and perspectives on race, culture, and business from the perspective of a Native son, African-American, descended from slavery, who served in the military and uh, works in social impact and just uh, I just think I just feel like I have a lot to say to the world. And I think an essay format is the best for me, just getting things kicked off. And so, you know, it was interesting that at the time I reconnected with Miko, it's almost like you start to become a lot more aware about some of the stuff I was talking about. Is that safe to say? Yeah, absolutely. I think my, you know, journey has been starting with reading to understand different perspectives and because I was a Marine officer, you know, I was very into war books and all the war books, all the memoirs are mostly written by white males. And that kind of continued on into my civilian life when I realized like, oh, I should also read books by people like me. Um, so that's where I started. Awesome. So for uh, people out there that don't know you, let's go and just give them a quick introduction to who you are. You know, I've already mentioned how we connected at the Naval Academy, but just, you know, give them a brief overview. Sure. Um, I'm an LA native, born and raised. I'm an older brother to six siblings. Um, went to the Naval Academy, did boxing stuff uh, with you. Um, 
and went to the Marine Corps. And I was a, actually an artillery officer, not an infantry, infantry officer. Um, and over the six, six plus years I was in, I did three deployments to Afghanistan, got out um, and went to corporate America for about five years and uh, quit that a year ago and have since been doing a lot of reading and reflection and uh, uh, here I am. So awesome. thanks for having me. It's funny, like if you, if this was like a TV show or like a movie like Forrest Gump, I feel like in every <laughs> aspect of my life, I keep bunk, bumping into like Miko. Right. Like from the time yeah. at the basic school, you were kind of out there doing stuff. I saw you. Then we're like doing our workup and we're at 29 Palms right before we get ready to deploy to Afghanistan. And I see you out there. And then I like right. were you just you had already had one deployment in Afghanistan at that point. Right. Yeah. So yeah. you were headed back to your, your second one and you mm -hmm. were there. I mean, America doesn't really talk about this no more. But like back in 2012, 2011, Sangin was a big deal. Everything mm -hmm. that was going on there. I remember we used to know like all the units. You were with one seven, correct? Three three seven. You were with three seven. And that was yep. before three five went in? Yeah, three five ripped with us. So Yeah, so yep. you you all went in, you replaced the British troops that were there. Exactly. Kind of fell into the little minefield at the start of that whole craziness. And then yep. uh a lot of people we remember it for three five. And when I say people, I mean in the Marine Corps. I don't know mm -hmm. about the the rest of America. They don't tend to care too much. Yeah. But it's amazing how at that time, how that was just like such a big deal to us. You know, I think about that now, man. Like I used to read the ARs before we went on deployment. You remember that stuff? Like mm -hmm. reading mm -hmm. what was coming out of theater and everything is like a whole nother world. Yeah. <laughs> and now I can't even remember like the different billets in the Marine Corps. <laughs> I was just like, <laughs> I don't know, man. It's, right. it, it was such an important part of our lives. And then now as we're in the civilian world, we just focus on different things. So uh, before we jump into the meat of the show, you know, on every episode, I like to create a little empathy with the audience by sharing a confession. Let's get started with you. Why don't you share a confession for our audience? Sure. So I think, you know, the last year, year and a half is when I've finally reached my initial stage, stages of what I call racial puberty, which is being aware of my own race and aware of being aware of race in general in America. And I think, you know, I've always considered myself a smart, high-performing dude. And yet, you know, I find myself at this point in my life where I'm more hyper-aware of just not myself, but of the environment we live in. And I think, you know, this was happening before, you know, the uh, George Floyd murder and things like that. But it's been a, a slowly building thing over time. And I think now, you know... I'm coming to a reckoning with it personally, just as America is coming to a reckoning again. Um, and, and so my confession really is that, you know, as an adult, like I wish I had a little bit more awareness before, but now that I'm here, I'm going to do everything that I can to really move forward and, and be productive and be helpful. So. Awesome. Yeah. I'm excited to do a deep dive into that. Just kind of understand that process of what kind of, led to that because me and he have been having great discussions over the past few months, you know, and then it's just like with everything that's going on, it's just kind of like amplified that a bit. But I, mm -hmm. I do appreciate the fact that we were starting those discussions early. So, you know, it's like people were kind of catching up, you know, catching up to some of the stuff we're talking about. Um, and you were actually one of the ones that kind of put me on to Colonel Hobbs before he that article hit the Marine Corps Times. You, you read like the pre-article or something. I think it <laughs> yeah. was like published elsewhere. Um, well, that's great. For me, my confession is not as uh, 
my confession is a little different because I just want to let you all know out there. Um, my confession is I'm kind of burned out a bit. I have been going pretty hard for the past. I mean, really COVID like, I mean, I've already been going hard as it is, but then COVID that's just like, I've just done such a sprint to kind of stay active, keep my energy level up, not, you know, get depressed with all the stuff that's going on in the economy and the world and doing a bunch of different projects. But, uh, you know, just keeping that energy going, just feel a little burned out right now, feel a little tired. But one thing I will say is of of all the work projects I do, I really do enjoy this podcast, right? This is this is important to me because this dialogue is just empowering. And I just spend so much time consuming audio that, uh, you know, being able to come on here and share insights with you all is really one of the ways I like decompress. Um, but again, no matter what y'all see on LinkedIn, social media, whatever, man, it's a hustle. I don't got it figured out. I'm making it up as I go along. Um, and even with this podcast, you know, just staying, trying to stay consistent with it and keep publishing episodes and keep having good dialogue. And so I just appreciate y'all sticking in and, uh, you know, just tuning in to, to the show when we drop it. So uh, super excited to dive in with Miko. Before we do, we got to give a quick shout out to our sponsors. First, we're going to give a shout out to Dope Coffee, a lifestyle brand that pairs urban black culture with innovative product offerings in the coffee industry. We're not a coffee brand for black people. We're a coffee brand that seeks to elevate black culture through a lifestyle of premium coffee and candid conversation. Next, we want to give a shout out to my brand, the one and only Ironbound Boxing, a fitness brand that utilizes the wellness benefits of boxing to transform communities, individuals, and corporate teams, helping them thrive and realize their fullest potential. Proceeds from our services fund free boxing training, entrepreneurial education, and employment opportunities for Newark youth and young adults. Boom, shout out to two badass brands right there, Ironbound Boxing and Dope Coffee, both run by African-American Marine Corps officers, combat veterans who love our country and are all about creating opportunities for the community. Shout out to our Dope Coffee uh, and Confessions of a Native Son super fans, rocking an Ironbound Boxing hoodie or t-shirt, sipping some Dope Coffee, got a stacks of book. They're tuning in, excited to learn about the culture and learn our perspectives uh, on the show. So shout out to all y'all out there. And we appreciate the support you sending us the emails and reaching out to us on LinkedIn. Without further ado, let's get into the theme of today's show. And we're going to title this theme Confessions of an Asian American. So Miko, let's go a little bit back. Take us back to your upbringing a little bit, because I want to know, I want you to guide our audience on the kind of perspective you're bringing now and what kind of led up to this awareness for you. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, you know, I'm a second generation uh, son of immigrants. Uh, my dad is from Japan, uh, full Japanese. You know, his his father was in the, the Japanese side of the, the war. Um, my mom is half Japanese and half Canadian. She's also an immigrant from Japan and Canada. And so I grew up in LA, which actually has a big Japanese American contingent, um, as well as a very much you know, expat Japanese contingent. Um, and I kind of fell somewhere in between. Um, so I did five days a week uh, school in American school. And then on Saturdays, um, I would go to Japanese school where it wasn't learn Japanese, it was just school in Japanese. So we would do you know, math, science, history, whatever. And um, it was originally established as a school for Japanese workers who brought their families over temporarily to be able to go back and integrate back into the school system in Japan. That slowly evolved over time, but you know, while I was there, I would say maybe half my cohorts were you know people who were going back home. 
Um, so it's pretty challenging. Um, I think, you know, part of me resented uh, the fact that I had to be Japanese and go to Japanese school on Saturdays because, you know, my, my American counterparts would just have Monday through Friday and then have fun on the weekends. So like I never did sleepovers, I never did sports. Um, so that kind of, you know, maybe was the beginning of my kind of shirking or um, distancing myself from my own identity. And I think that, you know, kind of has stuck with me until very recently. Um, as far as my path goes, you know, I think at an early age, I realized what I wanted, which was physical and financial independence. Um, and what I mean by that is I want to be able to pay my own rent, be under my own house, do my own thing and pay my own bills. And I think, you know, the clearest path that was painted to us in the nineties and early two thousands was go to college. Um, and, and, you know, you talked about this a lot before, but college again is a very hard thing for people that aren't coming up in, you know, middle to upper middle class families. Like it's not a reality to, to take and take on debt. Um, and, you know, I was really lucky. I was, I went to a prep school, um, on a scholarship. Um, all my friends, you know, had really nice cars and you know, nice houses and they were all good people, but I just couldn't compete, um, financially of, you know, once I got into college, like how would I pay for it? And so, you know, I think probably early on in my career as a, as a high schooler, sorry, early on in high school, I tried to figure out how I'm going to get a scholarship and what's the best route. Um, and my girlfriend at the time was recruited to West Point um, as we were looking at colleges and, you know, she kind of convinced me to apply. Uh, I basically did a shotgun blast to all the, all the academies. And, you know, when I was looking at them, um, really realized that the Naval Academy has for me a lot of more options, right? Like you kind of think Air Force as pilots and planes and the army is just on the ground. And I just saw more opportunity. I know that wasn't the reality, but the more opportunity in the Navy, which, um, you know, kind of bound me to the Naval Academy. Um, side note, I was also recruited into the Navy as a, as a enlist kid. Um, mm. The recruiter really pulled the heartstrings of my financial independence goals to say, if you become a nuke, you will get $10,000 upon signing. And that to me was just an unimaginable amount of money that I just, you know, basically went and signed the papers that day. Um, and that kind of boxed me into the only way I can get out of boot camp was Navy ROTC or the Naval Academy. So mm -hmm. the stars aligned, you know, I got into the Naval Academy, thank God. So I didn't go to boot camp. Um, but that kind of, you can kind of see there's, there's a lot of correlation also between, you know, communities of color and military recruiting, right? Because it is, it is a very good and appealing opportunity, and we can talk about that. Um, but, you know, long story short, I went to the Naval Academy. I saw people like our coaches and our teammates that were going to the Marine Corps, that were going to the Navy SEALs, and I was like, I want to be like them. You know, I want to be in the hardest, most badass thing, and the Marine Corps was it for me because I also couldn't swim that well. So, um, you know, then I found myself in the Marine Corps, and... Uh, and then they did that thing. So, how was your journey, how was your so. deployment to Afghanistan? I know you said you had three. Which one was the most challenging? Yeah. I mean, I think definitely the most challenging was my first one. Um, you know, I showed up to my unit 
in the artillery uh, battery um, in early January. And they basically told me that I got, I'm getting, you know, TAD out to a grunt unit to go to Afghanistan. And my orders were go to 29 Palms, go talk to the, to the company. And, uh, and they were leaving in March. So, you know, between that time, I kind of scrambled to figure out what's going on. I had just signed a lease, you know, and so I'm like doing all the things that really brand new officers are trying to figure out while going to deployment. Um, and, you know, within the first month of that deployment, I got blown up. Uh, my, my vehicle hit a ID and it kind of like made everything real to me. Like up until that point, you know, it was, I think you mentioned this before in your, in your, uh, in your podcast, like it feels like just normal training. Like it feels like mouth or like being on effects. Right. And until something happens, you're like, shit, this is real. And, you know, that was, you know, month one or month two of my, you know, total of, you know, 21 months that I've ever I've spent there. Um, so yeah, I, I would say the first one was probably definitely the hardest. Um, and after that, it was kind of just, you know, auto, like you go, you go to Afghanistan, you come back, you train up for a year, you go to Afghanistan, you come back, you train up for a year, you know, and it's just like this repeat cycle that I think the Marine Corps is very good at doing. They're very good at making that process, you know, to, to get you to a deployable place. Um, and, and there's a lot of stuff that they're not good at, but I think from an operational perspective, they're really good at that. And, you know, I just happened to be lucky, maybe if that's the right word, of just going back to back to back um, with three different units. So, so that's kind of where that happened. Um, so, yeah, like you mentioned before, first deployment, you know, lots of more kinetic stuff. Uh, we hopped around all over the AO, ultimately ripped with the Brits and Sangin, ripped with 3-5. Um, they had their, you know, rough deployment there. Uh, and then when I deployed again, I was, you know, in artillery um, that we did for a little bit, but um, eventually we became like what we call BDOC, which is base, op- you know, base defense operations. Um, and we did that at... Uh, I think it was, yeah, it was Dwyer um, in charge of 5,000 military and civilians. So that was, you know, a whole nother beast um, dealing with ANA and Jordanians. Um, it was a lot more political and logistical than it was kinetic. Um, and then my last deployment was with Anglico, which is, you know, essentially kind of souped up fist teams that go out and deploy with, um, you know, joint or, uh, other units like so we worked a lot with army um but also worked with ana and afghan army and 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 other groups um you know also my my job was a jtac i controlled the aircraft um and you know relatively kinetic but it was also towards the end of the war or sorry it was towards the end of the you know big presence in afghanistan and uh, and there was just a lot of stuff going on, man. Like yeah. I can't even tell you the things <laughs> that had to be the that had to be a depressing time because I know oh, it was, yeah. like no one wants to go to Afghanistan, but it's like the drawdown going on, and like it's just got to be like depressing even mentally because that's the last thing you want to do, especially you want to get blown up out there while you're doing a drawdown. Exactly. People exactly. are like, "Hey, we need volunteers for this patrol." Like, nope. <laughs> you know. Yeah, you're the, you're, I mean, it was, yeah. Yeah, you're the officer, and you're like, man, we're about to go out on this mission, blown up. Yeah, dang. And you know, it's like, I'm I'm an officer. Like, we had a lot of officers. I think out of 20 of us, like, eight of us were officers. So, and every one of us had a, at least one or two deployments already. 
And, you know, you have the Marines there that are hungry, right? Like they want to go out. They want to do the things that they see in the commercials that they've been trained to do. And, you know, here we are as captains, not necessarily not wanting to do it, but trying to show the restraint that maybe we didn't have as a second lieutenant, you know, and, and, and trying to be a little bit more uh, practical with the mission set and how we execute it. And so that was another thing that, you know, made me, Maybe think that like maybe I did a disservice to those Marines sometimes, but I yeah ultimately it was a competition of like where are we going to put our resources and what risks yeah. you know are we going to put there? It's funny, right? Like when you watch movies, you always see the speeches when man, officers are like talking to their man. They're like, man, we're going to go out and we're going to take it to the enemy and blah, <laughs> like you got to fire them up. But the Marines, you don't really got to fire them up, man. They're like pet bulls oh, yeah. on a leash. They just they just oh. they just want to go out. You know, if oh. anything, you got to pull them back. So I know exactly. that had to be hard. So you, yeah. you come back, you do three deployments, and then you get ready to transition out. And you're like, man, I'm about to be a suit. You're about to join <laughs> corporate America. Well, you know, it's funny because I actually didn't want to be a suit, right? Like my vision, like this is like the hippie captain vision, right? Is like sit, sitting on a beach doing something. Um, I, I thought I would go to Thailand and like be a bartender, grow my hair out. Um, you know, I would... You know, my, my friend told me like law school graduates in LA were like bartending because it made more money doing that. I was like, oh yeah, then I'll, that's what I'm going to do. And, uh, my sister basically, who's, you know, younger than me, but way more mature was like, no, you need to go find a job, like try the career. If it doesn't work out, then, then whatever. But like, don't just like quit life as you know it to, you know, pursue this thing. And, you know, whether or not that was the right decision, I'm not sure, but I did it anyway. So I Googled, you know, like the hardest job to get and without an MBA um, and, you know, consulting, right? So like applied to a bunch of places, never heard back. And through a Marine Connection from TBS, actually, I got, a, I got an interview and got hired at a consulting firm in New York. And um, so I did that for like, you know, three or four years. Switched over to banking, did that for another less than a year and then Decided it wasn't my thing. <laughs> so here I am. Yeah. I, I remember when you were getting out. I was like, hey, man, because we ran into each other in Okinawa, right? Yeah. 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 I told y'all, we're like, it's like <laughs> Forrest Gump, man. He's like, That's he's great. like the genie of Forrest Gump. You just keep <laughs> bopping to, popping to him at different places. But we're like, yeah, man, what are you going to do when you get out? He's like, yeah, I'm about to be a bartender. Like, what? <laughs> you know, it's crazy. But you know what? That's probably been the most sanest thing you could have done. You'd have yeah, probably been so much so. happier and laid back because, you know, for us, when we go to like the Naval Cabin, you become an officer. There's all this pressure when you transition. I straight up had people telling me, yo, if you don't go to a top 10 business school, you're like a failure. It was yep. literally like no other school mattered, no other program. And when that's your peer group, it's just very, you know, you kind of, it's just challenging. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's a very uh, common thing that we kind of, tend to get boxed into. And it's, I, it's not even that, I, you know, that I don't do it or that I didn't want to do it. I feel like I felt bad not doing it. You right. know, like I felt like I was lesser because that's not what I wanted to do. Like, you know, I knew for a fact that I learned a lot better in the actual field than I do in the classroom, right? Like I learned by doing, not by going to school. So I was like, I don't want to go to school and get my MBA for two years. Not that it's not valuable. It's just, that's not my style, but I just felt like I was missing out. And like, I feel that all the time now because I'm not fully employed, you know, in a fortune 500 or, or whatever. 
Um, but I'm slowly trying to unlearn, you know, some of that stuff and really, um, and I think, you know, you've, you've said the same things, like really re-educate myself and, and figuring out where it is that I thrive the best and, and go from going for that. Yeah, it's fun. I've seen you over the years, right? And every time I saw you in corporate, you were never looking the most happiest. You were like, yo, yeah. oh, fuck, I, get like, I hate this. But you kept doing it. It's like we keep putting ourselves in these situations because we're high performers. That's just what we do. Um, and then, but yeah. but now, let people know what you're up to, what you're doing now. Sure. So I am, I mean, I'm doing a lot of different things, right? Um I would say 50, 50% of my time is work is on re-education and learning about things that I didn't learn, didn't know before. Right. Um, and I can talk about that in a second. And then my other job is I'm a research assistant, um, slash business analyst for a professor that's working on a project, um, on Japanese American internment. Um, do you want me to talk about that a little bit more? Yeah. So let's, what that is. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, kind of the long story short there, um, World War II, right? Pearl Harbor happened and the U.S. went to war with, with Japan. Um, and before the bombs even settled, or right before the dust settled, rather, um, the FBI and, and the Army were like basically rounding up Japanese-American citizens. Um, and what eventually happened was uh, Executive Order 9066, which is from a presidential order essentially, you know, deeming the West coast of the United States a militarized zone. And uh, it led to the incarceration of Japanese Americans, um, whether they were, you know, American citizens, which two thirds of them were, um, and then, you know, or Japanese immigrants, which one third of them were. And we're talking like everybody, right? So like babies, wives, children, um, people who served in the military, like everybody. And the part of the project that I'm doing is trying to, aggregate the actual number. Uh, we think right now it's about 120,000 um, people, um, but it might be actually a little bit more. And, you know, we hear about the camps like Manzanar um, or Gila River, but there's actually, you know, probably on close to more 40 camps. Um, and, you know, all, all it was was Japanese Americans uh, or Japanese descending people in the, on American soil were rounded up um, into what they call assembly centers, which is a very, you know, an, uh, another word that they use to make it soft, but they round them up into four stables, right? Um, they gave them all a number, uh, like a, like a prison number and they shipped them off to camp. And, um, you know, they were often in the middle of the desert, uh, pretty rough conditions. Um, and it was all based on this fear that Japanese Americans were spying for the enemy, right? Like there's this yellow pearl, um, and if you look back at, you know, even things like Dr. Seuss cartoons, like you'll see this characterization of, of Asian Americans and Japanese in particular as the enemy. Um, and so, you know, that project has kind of led me to re-examine some of the things that we see today. And one of the, one of the good examples, right, is um, I, I talked about the camps that these guys were held in. And, um, one of them was at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. And for those of you who don't know, Fort Sill is where the army artillery basic school is. And that's where the Marine Corps also trains. So, you know, when I was training there in 2009, almost 70 years before that people of my skin color were also detained there, right? They were jailed there. Um, 
And then fun facts, as I kind of learned about this a little bit more, um, the kids, the young teenagers and the young men that were incarcerated would eventually, you know, a lot of them eventually signed up for the army, right? And they made this like JA, Japanese American unit called the 442nd. Um, and they went, you know, primarily to Europe and they fought on the European front. And to this day, they are the most decorated unit in the entire American military, right? That's something that we don't ever hear. Like I, I as a Japanese American, never knew that. I did not know. And then, you know, so 30,000 give or take um, people in that unit. I think 9,000 people had Purple Hearts. So those, you know, another subset died. And those deaths were then reported back to the camps, right? Because that's where their parents were. Um, while their sons fought for the country and the Purple Hearts were issued, you know, in barbed wire, like behind barbed wire uh, to these mothers. So it's just this kind of weird thing that you don't really think about, I never knew about, and just understanding the context in which, okay, maybe this is why um, I need to relearn my history and understand this, right? So, uh, Jap- so you're saying Japanese Americans mm-hmm. fought in World War II? While their families yeah. were in detention centers in America? Yes. Yep. Interesting. Not only did they fight, they were the best fighting unit of World War II and of the history of the United States military, right? Like, which is crazy because you never hear that, you know? Um, and yeah, so, you know, for me as a Japanese American, as a military veteran, like, this is all stuff that I never knew. And to a lot of, you know, to a lot of it is my own fault, right? Because I didn't try to seek that knowledge out. And I think that's where I am now is to understand my own identity, my own place in this world. I want to know the history of the people who look like me in this country. It's all the time I've like known you, we've had conversations. We always talked about like more so life and, you know, where we see ourselves headed and, you know, finding purpose and meaning. But I will say like in the last probably, what, four or five months or so, we've been heavily talking about like our identity as beings, you know, people Mm -hmm. of color. What led, I know you mentioned this project, but what was the nudge that you finally start to become aware of like these feelings and starting to question things? Was it the corporate America? Was it the Marine Corps? Was it just being a veteran and just kind of knowing that you blend into society? Like what was it that really just started to make you question what you have been taught and learned and start to look to become self-aware. I don't like to call it woke. I just like to say self-aware. Yeah. You know, and I think it's, it, it's a progression. Like it's hard for me to be like, okay, this is one day that I suddenly open my eyes and I put on a different lens. Right. Um, but I do, you know, some of the things that I've remember in my past leading up to this was things like, realizing that all the authors that I knew, because I love reading, like all the authors that I read and that I like are white men. And then understanding that that is one perspective. Sure. But why am I not reading pe- you know, books by people like me? Like No, No, No Boy by John Okada is a very famous Japanese American post uh, post-war book. And I had never read it until I was 30. Um, so like slowly then reading other books like James Baldwin, for example, who's a very articulate, very just smart individual who can really talk in depth. And, and I've never read something like that. Right. And like until I was 30. And so just like, again, 
kind of rolling through these iterations of, oh, here's this, oh, here's this, and like I'm uncovering stuff. Um, I think one of the things that really helped me open my my mind, quote, uh, is working with women. Like it was a weird thing, right? Like I came from an all-male unit uh, in the Marine Corps for six and a half years. And when I went to work for corporate America, like I literally avoided trying to talk to women because I thought people would think that I'm hitting on them, you know? Um, until somebody asked me, like, why are you ignoring women? I was like, oh, shoot. Like, I didn't even realize I was doing it. Um, and I'll tell you, man, like, my experience with women in corporate America is that they are far above, like, the bar of excellence, you know, because they've had to work so much harder to get there. And, like, they were the best people that I worked with, bar none, like, just overall, right? And not to say that they weren't good men. I'm just saying, like, just the standard of the the intelligence and the ethics of the woman that I had to work with or that I had the privilege of working with was something that I didn't really understand because I came from an all male unit. Um, you know, and then I think slowly it was a, me surrounding myself with people who have different perspectives than me and having them challenge me, I think was a very important part of my life. Um, because I think up until that point, I was very much trying to fit in. Right. So, um, you know, like I'm sure in the Marine Corps, I don't know if I told you this before, like I've had a lot of talk conversations about atomic bombs in Japan, you know, and it's funny because like in the Marine Corps, we're all green, but when it comes to issues of Japan, like I'm the representatives for some reason, even though I'm American. Right. And so now I'm having this conversation saying, yeah, I guess the atomic bombs were justified and I have to just like, assimilate with that perspective without really even challenging it myself um, because I don't want to ruffle feathers. And I think that slowly evolved over time where people were challenging my viewpoints and I was really hard headed and they kind of persisted and, you know, I've come up, come along a little bit more uh, than I, than where I was, you know, five years ago. So, you know, all of that to say, you know, I think there's still a lot of work that I have to do. Um, I feel like my current kind of passion or project is to just learn as much as I can and execute based on that knowledge um, to be more self-aware, as you say, and to be a better person. I feel like I'm right there with you, but I, mm -hmm. I kind of started my journey when I was at the Naval Academy. I mean, I read, I grew up learning black history, but it wasn't the time until like I was at Annapolis and I realized that there weren't a lot of people that looked like me and I was so far away from home and that mm -hmm. like most of the people that do look like me, they were working in services at the academy, you know, yeah. and I could dedicate a whole episode to that, to where like the people giving you food and taking out your, your trash and all this kind of stuff, you feel like you have more in common with than the people you go to school with. Um, and just what that feels like, because back at home, that would be your, be your aunt, that could be your uncle. So for mm. me, it was like that moment of like really kind of standing out. And I kind of started, that was when I dialed into the African-American history and really started to get hungry about it. And then just kind of following that over the years. But once I got out, I feel like I really ramped that learning up. Now I say I started it in, even in the military, but I'm probably where I'm at now though. I'm like you, like I am diving heavy into African-American history uh, and, and literature and just kind of consuming as much as I can. It's weird. It's like you find this, you get hungry about it, right? It's like you can't learn enough. 
we're on Zoom right now. You guys can't see. We're stackers. Me and him are both book stackers. <laughs> so if you look around our apartments, you got stacks of books everywhere. And it's like this sense of like, you're kind of finally getting an opportunity to learn who you are and where you came from, you know, and it's real powerful. And for, for whatever reason, people can't understand or appreciate that when they've never been um, part of a group that hasn't truly been taught as history. It's all, it's yeah. always just been kind of wave top, right? That, that, like that hit me what you said about you had American soldiers fighting for their country, dying for their country while their family members are internment, you know? And even thinking about, too, the Japs back in the day, they called them Japs and the, the images, right? The cartoons with the buck teeth and the like subhuman, you know, yeah. creatures, the rats. That's what you do with your enemies. You kind of dehumanize them. And you told me a story about where uh, your unit in the Marine Corps asked you to go uh, represent Japanese Americans at an event, right? And uh, what well, the... <laughs> Well, so it wasn't so much that I was representing Japanese Americans. It was, I was selected for some reason, um, to be part of a, you know, like the member, the, uh, the representative for my unit at an event. Um, it was first Mardiv. They had an event with HBO. Didn't really know what it was about. They said something about the Pacific. Didn't know what that was. So I show up, you know, I'm a second Lieutenant. I have a fresh haircut. I'm like super motivated, right? Like I have one ribbon, but I'm like, you know, I probably did like 10 mile run that, that morning just to get pumped up because I knew I was representing my unit. And, um, you know, I, I walk in and, and nobody there, number one, looks like me, but, but also like everybody's like a general or colonel, right? And then there you have all the World War II vets with their hats and their pins. And, um, and yeah, I sit down at a table. Um, some general's wife is talking about her horses and I, you know, try to, be respectfully respectfully interested but i'm trying to figure out what's going on um and you know the first guest speaker comes up and and they're like you know he's a world war ii vet white dude and he just says you know when i was killing japs on tarawa or something like that and i was like uh oh like i didn't realize that this is what it was you know and to be to be fair like maybe it wasn't an intentional thing um, by my unit. I, it's hard for me to, to like try to blame them for putting it on me. Um, but I knew that moment I was the most uncomfortable I had been maybe in my entire life, right? Because I had worked for four years at the Naval Academy, another year in TBS, just trying to become a Marine. And in that moment, I realized that people are going to look at me different no matter what. And I, put, I brushed it off, you know, um, but I, I just remember that moment where my my head was so hot, my palms were sweaty, and I had to go to the bathroom, but I was just like, I'm not moving because as, as soon as I move, they're going to see me, and they're going to see a Japanese-American-looking dude walking across, you know, the stage or, you know, across the view, and it looks like I'm scared and I'm comfortable, which I was, um, but it was just one of those things where, you know, had I had a little bit more awareness, um, number one, I could have known the situation, but I also wish that, you know, at my unit or whoever was in charge of doing this would have a little bit of sensitivity and considering what this meant for me, you know? And I think intention aside, like these are some of the small things like the deaths by a thousand cuts where you're told that you're different in different ways, um, even if it's not intentional, right? Um, so that's, yeah, that's one example that I, I remember clearly, but, um, yeah. 
It's that moment. Nervous of, just thinking about it. Yeah, when you're watching like Cowboys and Indians, and then you realize you're the Indians. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that exactly. feeling with a lot of stuff. Yeah. And you know what? The funny thing is like, I could tell 100% that 90% of the, the actors that were Japanese were not even Japanese, right? Like they had bad accents. Like they were just characterized stereotype people that like were, were saying these crazy things um, in the Japanese language, but it, they weren't saying it. They weren't real. You know, it was like a, a character, like you said. Um, and so that was also weird. So one of the things we've been talking about too, as you've become aware and you've started to kind of, you know, start to ask questions and dive deeper into your understanding of your own history and start to kind of look back at some of your interactions. How has your social circle um, responded to your awareness? Yeah, uh, it's funny. Um, You know, I thought that I would lose a lot of friends. So I wrote an article about, you know, essentially addressing uh, the Naval Academy leadership to say, hey, you know, systemic racism is something that you need to address instead of ignoring basically. And, and I can talk more about that later, but so that I thought would again, make me feel like I'm losing my friends, which I did. Um, and, and I don't think I've lost friends per se, but I think it's definitely made them look at me differently. Um, and now having to engage them as somebody who used to say similar things as them, right. Um, who used to kind of shrug aside any, uh, jokes or, you know, comments about race, whether it's myself or other races, um, or women or, you know, homosexuals or whatever. Like, I think we're now re-examining that and rehashing it in a, in a different way that like I'm, I'm rehashing it in my own way and they're rehashing it in their way. And it's just like very conflicting because, for me, it's more about awareness and understanding what that implies versus for them. It's kind of the good old boys, you know, this was locker room talk. Like this is not laundry to be aired out and none of us are racist. None of us mean ill against other people. And for me, it's, it's more about, there's a lot of like difference. There's a, there's a, not a difference, but there's a, there's a distinction between a personal interpersonal racism and structural, right? Like somebody can be racist by saying racist things, but you can also be racist by not even knowing something's racist. Right. And so like these things that are now coming out, I'm learning the language a little bit more about understanding how to talk about it. And it's really challenging when my friends and strangers on the internet are just like challenging my character. Um, and I get it. Like they're angry too, because I'm calling out something that they respect and so yeah, it's just really, for the most part, for me, been a learning opportunity to to understand the perspectives and the viewpoints of people who are going to come at me and better equip myself to to articulate why I think the way that I think, right? Uh, so as you know, I'm a big fan <laughs> of Ralph Ellison and his book, Invisible Man, and this idea that people don't really see us. You know, mm-hmm. they don't really see us. They They kind of project upon us. And one thing I think... That I one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast and having these discussions is because I want people who interact with me. I don't want to have to be invisible to them. I want yeah. them to know exactly who I am, what I'm about. If something happens to me and my kids discover this podcast or whatever, they know exactly where I stood. I don't want people to be like, oh, I wonder what Mike would think about this. You know how I would think about it because I'm putting it out there. And when you do this, I feel like it's a lot freer. See, what people don't realize is that all the minorities that they think they know 
right? It's kind of coming from power too, yep. right? That people can't really expect them express who they are because of our different environments, right? Like even at work, whether in corporate America or in the military, like people of color can't really be themselves because they won't mm -hmm. be accepted or it might hurt their performance or it might hurt all these different things. And so you kind of live this lie where you think you know who these people are and you don't really know them. But then what's happening now with like everything caused by like George Floyd, whatever, people are trying to come out and speak out and speak openly. And the space has kind of been created to do so. And people feel some kind of way about it because it's just like, wait, you shouldn't think that way. Like, I, you know, I didn't know you thought that way or, or whatever. But I just think that, you know, when I first got out and we come from a super conservative culture. I know when I moved yeah. to New York City, snowflakes, softies, hipsters, you know, and I tell y'all, nah, man, I drink a mocha latte with almond milk and sprinkles. <laughs> I was, I'm, I'm depressed because my coffee shops are closed, you know, but you grow mature, social maturity, right? You change over time. Muhammad Ali said a man who views the world at 50 the same way as he did at 20 has wasted 30 years of his life. But so many people are comfortable not moving forward at all, you know? Yeah. And I think it, it just, it makes them feel uncomfortable when we, when they find out who we really are. But it also feels so much freeing for us. Don't you agree? Yeah, I think it's it's both freeing and, you know, it's really challenging because you now have to reckon with, like you said, your own past um, and how you were. And I think, you know, there's a part of you that, you know, wants to be angry about who you used to be and another part of you that wants to forgive them and, like, understand why they were the way they were. Um, but you're right. Like, I think this lens or this this uh, idea that people have of us um, is something that's very coming from a power position, right? Um, and it's because the minority narrative is not the predominant narrative um, of the American past. And, you know, I'll give you an example. Like I'm trying to get a little bit more involved with my local neighborhood. And, you know, we had a meeting about um, a homeless issue. You know, COVID-19 is, is hitting LA pretty hard. People are getting unemployed. Um, homeless encampments are kind of proliferating in certain places and, you know, associated with crime and stuff, right? Um, and so, you know, these kind of, I don't want to say white people, but these people are <laughs> complaining that there's like this huge homeless encampments that are popping up around the city. And in our neighborhood, there's one in particular. And, you know, the police officer came on to talk with the neighborhood about it. And he basically, and, and, you know, some people grilled him about, okay, you know, what's the police doing? Are there outreach services? How are we working in social services? And the police officer straight up said to all of us that, oh, I've already talked to them about getting into rehab or getting into shelters and they don't want that help, right? They told me that they want it, you know? And like, and, and, and that position of power, that, that's less about white and black, it's more about his authority. But it just goes to show, like, he's now speaking on behalf of marginalized people. And the audience is taking that as a default perspective. You know what I mean? Like, now they're taking his word that, like, oh, he's already reached out and they don't want help. Instead of acknowledging that even if that's what every single person that he interacted with said, that that's not their real selves. Because he's in the power of authority and he's in a power position to, like, he's a, he has a gun, right? Like this guy's a police officer and he's talking to homeless people and they don't want to be more vulnerable to him than, than they already are. Right. They don't want to share their 
their utmost fears and their needs to him. Like they just want him to go away. And so just like, again, seeing these things from a different lens, I think for me has been really valuable because 10 years ago or five years ago, I would have probably listened to that cop. I'm like, Oh yeah, the homeless people, they don't, they don't want any help. You know, but that's not obviously not the case. Like, so, um, and maybe this is kind of a digression, but I think that's what I now feel is that my friends are trying to push their views on me um, to tell me that I'm wrong, that I don't see what I'm seeing, to tell me that I'm crazy, right? And and I do doubt myself all the time, but I think that's just part of the process to, to try and figure out how you're going to move in the space um, and, and be better. And so that's just what I'm working on nothing's perfect. <laughs> so one of the things I reached out to you for, I talked about is a book, right? Mm-hmm. This confessions of a native son book. And for me, it's very important to speak out and like kind of share my views publicly because like you, I think thus you don't hear our perspectives very much, you know, of like, you know, yeah. this, this podcast for me is native son, you know, confession of a native son and I credit the native part to Richard Wright, the James Baldwin, this idea of being descended from slaves, you know, that America is our home, right? I'm not an immigrant. Like, mm-hmm. you know, this is this is my country. And you don't really hear that perspective much in terms of veteran, you know, Marine, combat, yeah. entrepreneur that has a lot of uh, challenging views, you know, different views. And, I, you know, it's important for me to go public because... I found out that a lot of more people think like me, but they just don't have the platform to do it or the societal constraints prevent them doing so. So that's important to me. And uh, of all my projects that I'm doing venture wise, you know, the book is going to be one of my most proudest moments for sure. Now you stepped outside your comfort zone too. And I remember you sent me a letter and you were like, I don't know if you were worried what I would think, but you forwarded me a, a letter you were writing to the superintendent yeah. of the Naval Academy after a board member was watching Fox News being racist. <laughs> and yeah. his, phone, his phone went on Facebook Live and he was just basically <laughs> just saying like what I imagine a racist person watching Fox News would say. Like if I Googled that on YouTube, if I Googled racist Fox News viewer or something, yeah. I feel like that conversation would come up. Like it's just perfect hook, <laughs> line, and sinker. Like no surprise. But you sent me a letter and you were writing to the soup and you were like, hey, man, you know, if you don't want to read it, no problem, but whatever. And I read, I'm like, dude, this is good. Do you, yeah. do you, man? Um, <laughs> why was it important for you to come out and express that in that way? Why go public? Yeah. And I think, you know, so part of this whole conversation for us is this notion of privilege, right? And how you use that privilege. So for me, Um, you know, I, regardless of the fact that I've worked hard or whatever, like I am privileged in the sense that I have a good education and I have a network and to some degree a platform that I can leverage. And so I thought that when I read, so I'll I'll talk about why I I wrote it, but the reason why I published it is, is because I have that platform, um, where I've made connections through military or corporate America, um, and people would at the very least see, um, what I wrote. Um, the reason why I wrote it is, you know, like Mike said, the the conversation was this person said something racist and it leaked online and he was associated with the Naval Academy. Um, the response 
to that and some of the other things that were going on in the world to include the George Floyd murder is from the Naval Academy was like two paragraphs by the dean and the superintendent. And within those, I just didn't see this um, kind of awareness or commitment to say, let's examine this. Let's figure out why, you know, an academy grad who's who spent 25 years in the Navy was able to do so with all of these things ingrained in him. Um, and, and so, you know, the, the short of it is that they said something to the effect that this is not within our core values, that we do not tolerate racism and bigotry, and that everybody at the Naval Academy is treated with, you know, fairness and justice. And I kind of just wanted to say, like, that is exactly the problem, right? Like, if we say that nothing is wrong, then we can't address the problem. And you best believe that the Naval Academy has a history of racism. I mean, you, you've been there, it was only 10 years ago, but like, you know, it's, Annapolis was what, the capital of the South for a while. Like it's a very Southern culture. It's a very, um, you know, it was segregated until the 19, what, 1949, right? So like it has a history. So to think that, or to say that, I think really minimizes and erases some of the things that they could get out of really well thought out, articulate people that are there experiencing the things that we experience, you and I. Um, and I just feel like that type of language just shuts down any sort of conversation, right? Um, what I wish or what I would have liked to see is like, this is something that we take seriously and we are engaging with our staff and our student body to understand, you know, the, the profile or the landscape of any of the issues that might be stemming from here, you know? Um, and again, I think their statement also pointed to the fact that racism is an individual thing and therefore, you know, he's a bad person and he's a racist versus institutionally and structurally, how are we addressing this as we, you know, as we want to get better and progress. And I think I didn't see that. And, you know, a lot of people said, I'm just jumping on the bandwagon of call out culture. And that may be true. Like, I don't know if that's, but this was just the one chance that I had because it was my alma mater. You know, I had a LinkedIn profile with, I don't know, 500 connections. And I just decided, you know, screw it. Like, I'm just going to say what I'm thinking. And I know I'm going to piss people off, but I might as well do it now. You know, so, so here, so here we are, you know. Did you hear a response um, from the Academy? Did you mail it I off? Didn't, I, I did mail it to them. Um, I didn't hear a response. I didn't expect one, um, but I did get a lot of responses, you know, in the forms of comments, you know, calling me a coward or a martyr or whatever. And I think even that part was good for me to understand, um, you know, nobody's going to agree with you and people who feel threatened or people, people who, who don't know how to argue with you in a constructive way are going to throw shit, you know, throw slang or bad words at you. And I just have to be able to, deal with that because it's not about that's at that point it's not about me right like that's that's their that's their problem so yeah it's been a good learning experience but i have stayed up a couple of nights trying to articulate the best responses <laughs> i wouldn't even i just say thank you for, <laughs> thank you for your service you know yeah. keep it moving what's crazy is that like you got people that will be like i've never seen anything in my entire 30 years and blah, blah, blah. yeah and you're like bro <laughs> all right <laughs> You know, good on you, man. And like, I, I don't have time to respond to comments. I'm not a comment kind of guy. 
Mm-hmm. I have a podcast because it's easy to do a comment, I think. You know, like what you did was hard, articulating a letter, coming up with a response, firing it off, writing a comment is nothing. It's like the most <laughs> laziest thing you can do, right? Yeah. Calling somebody on the phone, doing something like that, having real dialogue, that's, that's the hard stuff. Commenting and whatnot is easy. But when people say stuff like that, and especially when it's like, listen, regard, like, regardless of your opinion on the subject, when people bring stuff to your attention as a leader, you got two options. You can either just write it off and whatever, I don't believe that, or you can just take a pause and say, hmm, is there something more to this, right? Mm-hmm. Can I examine it instead of just writing it off? I'll give you an example. I, uh, I do virtual boxing classes, okay? And at the end of every class, I do stretches. I stretch out the clients. And one of the stretches I do is cross your feet Indian style, bring your feet in. Mm-hmm. And I get feedback. I have a feedback app where people can submit feedback. And someone sent me a message and rated my class. And they're like, hey, great class, but please don't use the word Indian style. It's derogatory. Mm. And I was thinking, like, I got triggered. I'm not going to lie. I was like, man, this, what the, I've done, like, (laughs) I've been doing this for, like, two months. Somebody jumps on and has a dacity to call me. But I had to take a pause. And I said, wait, that person is Indian. Maybe that means something different to me than it does to them. Mm -hmm. Right? Maybe they don't have the same relationship with it. Right? And to be honest, I just knew it was always described that way to me. So you know what I did? I didn't write it off. I, I ate it. And now I, I adjust it. I call it the butterfly stretch. Just sit down, right. bring your feet in butterfly style. And you know what that goes back to? Not being an asshole. <laughs> just because you may can doesn't mean you should. Um, and it's not like, I don't, it's so, it's a power thing. This is what I'm getting at. It's this, this, mm-hmm. this like people don't want to lose their power. It's like you, you take the power from way to, to kind of move and do what they want. And that guy on that board, I'm going to say this, right? Because this is, I, I have mentees at the academy. There are some very, very talented minority candidates, right? I'm talking like 4.0, whatever, but let them get over guys like that. You know, a guy like that will make a recommendation for some mediocre midshipman, right? With a 3.0, some minority kid will have like a 4.5 you know, multiple AP courses, you know what I mean? And they feel some kind of way when that minority kid gets in, mm-hmm. you know, and create all kind of hell. And then that guy, the kid graduates is like chief of Naval Operations Award, you know, maxes out the Naval Academy. But guys like that on the board, like, I, I don't understand how you cannot think that somebody like that at that, at, I mean, he's like 60 some years old. Mm-hmm. You know, he's got like a son that goes to academy too. You don't think that that stuff passes down? How many careers has he ruined? You know, fit reps, yeah. all that kind of stuff. I mean, I, I think that's exactly it, right? Like maybe he didn't pass it down to his son. I don't know. But I know that him as an individual, like you best believe that his sailors knew, maybe not to that degree, but there was, they like, I feel like we have a spidey sense, right? Like we know this like, hidden invisible undertone that we can always sense and um you know 25 years and maybe like that's thousands of lives he's touched right and with a power of authority and and a power position so i i think that it's just it's it's just too kind of dismissive to say that this is just an individual thing um because people like you and me, and, and I would, I would probably argue that more than, you know, more in the black community than, than not that you guys get it. Like you see this, 
and you talk about it amongst yourselves and it's not it's not a fake thing that people are telling us that it is right like people just literally say that it doesn't exist but it's it's a very real thing and i think i think that the frustrating part is when you see something or sorry when you're trying to argue with somebody who just doesn't see the same thing you're seeing like it's easy to like look at the same thing and then argue about it but when you're not seeing the same thing it's just a whole another level of argument right like it's just a weird place <laughs> to be in um, 100 percent. Yeah. and even with that i said this on another episode native son this is going to come to a reckoning and i'm, I'm this is a self-awareness for me of all the environments i've found myself in where i'm like one of one i'm always looking at it from the perspective of a male the black male mm -hmm. We've had our fat black females out in the wild by themselves fighting it off, you know? Yeah. And that video that was recorded was a prime example of that because the derogatory and the viciousness with which he described black females mm -hmm. in that video, I mean, in that recording, you know, just think about that, man. Even as I was, think about that black female officer getting that fit rep ridden or that yeah. black enlisted sailor. Or that black female midshipman. And that's how you think and refer to it. And it's just like, for me, you know, I just think, I look back at my history, man. And I think, you know, there's so many times in my life where I've seen, you know, just to be quite frank, black females struggling in an environment. And I mm -hmm. wasn't there. I didn't have the social awareness and confidence to just even be more supportive. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and it's just one of the things that I kind of, that might be a essay in the book just coming, mm -hmm. raising awareness about, but I, I do think about that stuff. And, you know, when we have these conversations, y'all, we're not having these conversations to like make people out there feel bad or feel some kind of way. We just think that this stuff is important to move our culture, American culture forward, where voices are more inclusive, you know, where our, our history, where our kids can read our history and know where we stood and what we believed in and have it in a very pure and honest coming from us. Not yeah. like some fake history, you know? And sometimes I just think it's going to be hard for people to understand and comprehend it. But like, yo, this train is moving. America is moving forward. You can get on board. Or get, you're going to get left behind. But you're not mm -hmm. slowing this thing down. And so, like, I think people like us, the stuff we're doing, the veteran perspective, I think is very important. And I think people will appreciate it. Especially, God damn it, man, we've, we've sacrificed for this country. We went and fought for this country. You've gotten blown up. I've gotten shot at. I'd be damned if somebody's not going to let us come on here and speak our truth. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, they can disagree all they want and that's fine. I think that when, you know, for me, like I can't even grasp the depth of this conversation. Right. Cause it's like racism is so deep, right. There's so much to it. It's what's it's, it's not just America. It's not just, you know, in the military, it's it's really around us, and to understand that and what you're talking about—the intersectionality with with gender, with you know sexual orientation or whatever—like this stuff goes really deep. And you know, I have to always remind myself that number one, I'm not an expert, and that I'm learning every day. Every conversation I have with somebody hopefully points me towards a better self awareness. Um, but you know, to me, it's like, I'm just starting, I'm just starting to figure out the battle space, if you will, of this whole conversation. And, 
and, and being more flexible and open um, to other people's perspectives. I think, you know, when I read these comments coming at me or people messaging me saying, you know, you need to like shut your mouth and stay in your lane. Like I'm trying to absorb all of that to, to, to try to form a better way to, to be right. Um, not that I want to make everybody happy. It's just all this stuff is really deep and, and very complicated. Um, so yeah, I really enjoy being able to talk to you about it. Um, and, and being able to have a productive conversation. Like, I don't think you and I are going to agree on everything, you know, ever. Right. Like no. that's just not, I don't think that's what this is about. I think this is about really listening and, and, and talking. I think that's what is missing a lot in the world right now is listening. hundred percent. And I think it's important too on this, this closing point for me, you know, we went to a leadership institution, right? The United States Naval Academy. We got trained to be officers in the military, the Marine Corps, the pinnacle of leadership, right? Doesn't it make sense then we should be leaders in the conversations around race and culture, right? Like in your, in, you know what I mean? Like, are you surprised that like we're out here having these discussions and leading it and stirring up the hornet's nest? You shouldn't be because we got trained to be leaders in these yeah. institutions. We're not the type to just kind of sit back. So I think it's that thing again, People don't mind you. They train you up. But as long as it's utilized for a certain people's benefit, it's like as long as you kind of stay in the box, don't go taking that knowledge that we're empowering you with and run out here and start, you know, um, talking crazy or whatever. But for us, it's just like, dude, I don't know how not to be a leader. Just be quite frank. And this yeah. conversations, I just look at the kind of conversations that we see coming out. And I think us as veterans have ability to um, more so than anybody else. We can disagree all day. But at the end of the day, we'll also grab a beer and hang out afterwards. The rest mm -hmm. of America doesn't have that kind of relationship. And so that's why yeah. I think it's imperative that, you know, we do speak up and kind of show that like, hey, we can have these thoughts and we can, you know, have this dialogue, but we, we don't have to kill each other over it. Yeah. And I think you, you nailed it, man. Like, I feel like at some point it became, it wasn't a choice for me, right? Like, this is just what we are trained or want to do like it's in our blood. And I don't think that we can live with ourselves without, you know, if we don't do what we do. Right. And not to say that I'm, you know, high and mighty and know everything. It's, it's just that I felt wrong not to say something because it wasn't reflective of who I was as a person. So, you know, I think that was good that you pointed that out. This is something that, you know, not just Naval Academy grads, obviously, but people who, I think maybe if they're feeling that they can't speak out or if they're even shy about speaking out, they don't know how to say it the right way. Like I would say, just do it and see what happens because either way it's going to be a learning opportunity, you know? Yep. Um, that's what you do with this podcast, which is great. Thanks man. And, uh, appreciate having you help me with this book project. Keep nudging me. We'll get this yeah, first essay do done and we'll keep rolling for people that want to get a hold of you or find out more about you and the work you're doing. How can they reach you? Uh, probably the best, uh, is LinkedIn, uh, Mikoto Yoshida at linkedin.com or no, just Mikoto Yoshida on LinkedIn. Um, or you can look for, uh, you know, Mike's link on his, on his LinkedIn. Um, that's the best way for me. Awesome. Well, appreciate y'all tuning in for another episode of the show. Do me a favor and be sure to subscribe and support this podcast by giving us five stars and leaving a review on iTunes. Also, 
Forward this show to anyone in your network who you feel identifies with the subject matter. We're really trying to get our subscribers up, y'all. So if you haven't done so already, just make sure you do subscribe to the podcast. It helps us out on analytics, visibility, and drawing more people into this show. You can order some dope coffee at www.realdopecoffee.com. We've got to start supporting our businesses, veteran-owned businesses. We're actually in the midst of a funding funding a fundraising round. We raised eighty-seven thousand of our hundred seventy k hundred seventy k target. We're excited about this investment round, and I highly encourage all my friends and family to make an investment in us. You can invest for as little as two hundred and fifty dollars. Also, be sure to donate at www.ironboundboxing.org. Every donation allows us to support free amateur boxing programs for youth and young adults in low-income communities. We're also proud to introduce Thrive, our summer business pitch and pitch competition and small business incubator. Thrive is specifically designed for youth and young adults age 14 to 22 in Newark, New Jersey. In order to participate, applicants will have to spend four weeks in our online Thrive Accelerators. We're giving away 7K K in cash prizes to the winners, and we're just going to have a great time supporting the community, teaching them some entrepreneurship, and helping them generate income and in, income for themselves. If you all want to get out a hold of me or message me, feel free to do so on LinkedIn or shoot me an email at Mike at We Are Ironbound. Special shout out to my co-producer, Mr. Mike Lloyd, CEO of Dope Coffee Company. And also want to give a shout out to the team from the Gifted Sounds Network for allowing us to record this podcast and uh, put it on their network. Until everybody, until next time, everyone, peace, love, and have a great rest I'm of your week. Black man, hold up my head, black man. Beautiful black man, now don't that feel nice, man? I love your brother, black man, and chase your dreams, black man, and get that cream, black man. We the original man.